The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, science, disinformation, and yet another mention of Elon Musk. These people are obsessed. Sunday, the 7th of August, 2022, as the Winter Series continues, our special guest is, once more, the creator of SpaceAustralia.com, astrophysicist Rami Mandau. Now, obviously, we're going to talk about the new Space Telescope pictures, but we also discuss the problem of misinformation. We're not taught critical thinking growing up, like you're not. We talk about naming things after people when the people turn out to be terrible. No one's got a clean past. Unfortunately, what we do today is going to probably look like shit 10 years or 15 years from now, and we don't know that. And Rami reveals why he'd love to be a bird. How awesome would it be just to be up there and just float around and looking down and shitting on people whenever you wanted to? Hello, I'm Stilgerian. This is the 9pm Space Telescope titillation with Pulsar boy Rami Mandau. Rami Mandel, it is a very great pleasure to be speaking with you again. G'day, how you doing? Look, I'm glad it's Friday. That's all I'm going to say. Now, because you are an astronomer, um, we have to talk about the biggest news in astronomy in, in a while. Uh, here is a slightly overblown report from uh, ABC News. The death and birth of stars, galaxies colliding, and clouds on a distant world, all in a week's work for the world's newest and most powerful space telescope. They were better than I had imagined they would be. Light invisible to the human eye, travelling for billions of years, seen for the first time. It's going to change things across most of the spectrum of astronomy. Now that's the voice of Jonathan Lunine. He's an astrobiologist. Why did I write astrobiologist down? He's from NASA. I should just say he's from NASA. Um, I could play a lot more of that, but you're here, Rami. Let's roll back a bit. The James Webb Space Telescope. Why is it so amazing and cool and wonderful and shit? Okay, so it is, firstly, it's a beautiful telescope. It looks like a beautiful telescope and uh, it's obviously the best, you know, best new thing and the new, the new shiny toy for all of us astronomers. Um, so I guess it's, 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 it's a fantastic telescope because it does a number of things that we haven't been able to do before um, in the history of all of our observations of astronomy. Um, and uh, I if, to, to do to understand what how amazing this telescope is, there's a little bit of science involved in this. Um, but I, I, science in astronomy, it. it'll never catch on. <laughs> I know, I know, it's all the rage apparently. Um, but I mean, look, you know, it's already breaking records in its first month of science data coming becoming public. It's a telescope that's taken decades, and I mean decades, to get from idea to reality, and it's built by so many different collaborators around the world. And I mean. I want to stress this point because entire careers have been working on this telescope. Like people who finished their PhD 30 years ago and worked for 20 years in astronomy, you know, worked on a telescope that didn't exist. They worked on the theory in the background, on the instrumentation, and then they left astronomy and they did their own thing or, you know, um, ends up in another job. And so entire careers have been built on this telescope. And it's, um, 
it's no small telescope. <laughs> it's um, it's as big as a tennis court, and it weighs six metric tons. So it's pretty big. Um, wow. And this is the one that's, that's got these big hexagonal mirrors, right? Yeah, Which that's right. They indeed had to unfold and then calibrate to line them all up yeah, by absolutely. itself because you can't, you know, there's not exactly a maintenance team out there to give it a bit of a nudge if it's stuffed. Absolutely. Look, this, the, the, the James Webb mirror, the main primary mirror, is 6.5 metres in diameter. Okay. Um, now, wow. to compare compare that to Hubble, Hubble's um, about 2.4, 2.5 metres in diameter. And so to get a mirror that big into space, uh, you can't really put a 6.5-metre uh, mirror inside a rocket and launch it upwards into space because the vibrations of the rocket will start, you know, could cause deviations and cracks or whatever it may be, and that could damage the, the mirror, which would be a colossal waste of time and money for everyone. So instead, they were quite smart about it, and they made these smaller hexagonal sort of shaped mirror, uh, uh, reflectors uh, in mirror things, and they... They folded them together and uh, they, they launched the whole thing out to its target position. And then once it got there, it unfolded and made it an even larger mirror, a 6.5-metre mirror in a, in, a, in a bit of a honeycomb kind of shape. Um, and this is really cool because the bigger the mirror, the more resolution that we have and the more further and deeper we're able to see into the universe. Now, I, I'm just trying to do the numbers in my head. Um, Hubble about... Two and a half meters, two point four meters. This one six meters. Uh, two times their area is squared. That's a lot. Yeah, that's that's yeah. a lot of improvement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just abs- say, abs- yeah. absolutely. And a good example is like I mean, this is a very bad example in a way. My former telescope, uh, which I have mm-hmm. at home, well, it used to be like a maybe like a, a six-inch sort of refractor. And sorry, a six-centimeter refractor. And um, and that's how big the eye of a telescope was. And I could sort of see the, the craters on the moon. I could see Jupiter and its its moons. And everything else was a dot, like it just looked like a dot. Now my bigger telescope, which is 20 centimetres in diameter, allows me to take photos of galaxies that are like, you know, 120 million light years away from my from my roof, from my balcony here at home. So, you know, the bigger the eye of a telescope, the more better the resolution. The better the resolution, the further you could see. And the further you could see, the more information you can get about what's going on out there in the universe. And, of course, uh, being a space telescope, it doesn't have to look through the Earth's atmosphere, which is dirty and wobbly. Yes, absolutely. To use that's, the technical terms. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the most uh, wonderful things about this thing. It actually exists beyond the atmosphere, so it doesn't have to deal with atmospheric corrections like the rest of us plebs have to. Um, it is, uh, you know, when you see a star at twinkle, when you're looking at night in the night sky and you're seeing a star twinkle, what you're seeing is the light coming through the atmosphere and the atmosphere is turbulent, and so it, the, the light actually jumps back and forth, and you're seeing that jumping back and forth as twinkling. Now, most proper telescopes on the ground, uh, not my balcony telescope, but like the proper big telescopes, um, they need to correct for this. They, they apply laser technology called adaptive optics to offset that, um, that turbulence, and that's quite smart technology, but it does cost money, it requires maintenance, etc. Wait, wait, is, wait, if I can just stop. I'd forgotten yeah. that this was a thing. And I, I'm going, this basically means the laser is watching the atmosphere wobble and you wobble the telescope to match so yes. it, your image turns out sharp. 
Yes, it's, it's, it's incredible technology. They've got some beautiful adaptive optic systems around the world, but effectively they shine a laser through the atmosphere at, and they sometimes shine four or five different lasers up to different altitudes and they, they see how much that laser is being wobbled by the atmosphere at those different altitudes. And then they actually, that, that data comes back into the telescope into not the primary mirror, but a secondary or a third mm-hmm. mirror, which is called a deformed a deform mirror. And that deformed mirror is able to adjust itself at different angles at different speeds uh, to counteract that turbulence in real time to give you an extremely sharp image. I, I was about to say the future is fucking insane, but this is not the future. This is this is now, and and it makes the stabilization feature on my phone's camera look a bit bit shit by comparison. <laughs> Slightly yes. cheaper, obviously. Yeah. Uh, now, and also the telescope's out. Uh, it's it's sort of equilateral triangle between the Earth, the Moon, and it, isn't it, or not? Yeah, it's so one of the triangles. Yeah, yeah. So where it's located is one of the Lagrange points, and it's um it's a location where the uh, and there's a couple of these points around uh, Earth and Moon and the Sun, and it's a place where the gravity is kind of neutral between the the Moon's pull the Earth's pull and the Sun's pull. So it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's a, what we call a stationary point out in space. And there's a couple of telescopes that live out there. It's not just the James, uh, James Webb Space oh, okay. Telescope, but there's actually a couple of, of these observatories that live out uh, L2, was once called, which is Lagrange, mm-hmm. Lagrange Point 2, which is between the Earth and the Moon. Um, and it's a very stable place. It, you know, once you get out there, you don't need to spend too much fuel inside trying to adjust the position of the, of the telescope because you're basically using a, the equilibrium of gravity between all three bodies, the Earth, Moon, and the Sun, to just reside where you are. The maths of that's fascinating, by the way, if you want to get into it. Oh, it's not rocket science. Well, it's not rocket science, but it is orbital mechanics, and that, that can do your head in if you want yes. to look at the equations. It's really cool stuff. It is all, orbital, orbital mechanics and orbital dynamics is really cool. And it's not just cool in terms of like where you place a telescope um, out in a certain point, like a balance. What I find the, the best part about orbital dynamics mm. and mechanics is when you're planning uh, interplanetary missions, oh, and and you oh. want to use you want to use the, the gravity of the planets to gain Slingsh- speed. Yeah, to slingshot, slingshot around, like we do the voyages. I yeah. was about I was about to stop you and say, I'll write down what I think you're going to say next, <laughs> and then you say it, and I'll hold it up to the camera. But yeah, that was it. It is. It is seriously cool. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely amazing stuff. Okay, so several weeks now into the James Webb Space Telescope pumping stuff out. We saw some amazing pictures on the first day, of course, of the data release uh, showing here's Hubble and now here is an incredibly much more sharper photograph. Isn't that amazing? Which is what else have we seen so far? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been a bit tiring to say them as, as a good <laughs> bored with space. No, no, not bored, but more so exhausting. In that, um, it's relentlessly coming out. It's like there's lots mm. of beautiful new science coming out, and almost on a daily or every second day basis. And um, for someone like me who you know jumps at oh shiny new thing, oh shiny new thing, I need to sort of read the paper and. Um, trying to get across what the what the new discovery is, and you know, having to read a paper in depth every two days for a field that's not my field, um, just because I'm purely interested in what's being produced by the telescope, is exhausting. <laughs> so um, it is. 
I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, I just need a break, James Webb. I just need a break. Just give me a couple of days to sort of chill out and get back to my, my feet. I mean, surely that's going to happen because we they did save up like the first big batch of observations yeah. and papers to do this massive PR dump and good on them, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. It's got to settle down, surely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's. We had those, as, as you mentioned, we had those beautiful uh, four or five images that came out about you know the, the deep field of the galaxies, the couple of planetary, sorry, the planetary nebula, the Carina nebula, a couple of other galaxies, and they were all stunning, absolutely stunning. And mm. that was enough to actually. And I remember seeing when they came out, I gasped. I literally at two a.m. sitting at my computer and gasped. Um, but after that, um, there's been like every second or third day, there's been oh, we found a galaxy that is at the point of history in the universe that is 250 million years after the Big Bang or 300 million years after the Big Bang. And these are still... Which is basically the next day in terms of yes. galactic, to, in, in yes. cosmological terms, I mean Absolutely, to say. yeah. yeah. And I, sh- I should flag, these are still undergoing the peer review process. So they're yep. not fully accepted yet, um, but they, the science is looking good. But effectively, what James, uh, what this telescope's given us, is an ability to look back at the, some of the earliest epochs of the universe's history, and it's it's fascinating because we are starting to ask questions like, if only two hundred and fifty million years had passed after the Big Bang, how how the fuck did like these galaxies have time to form into spiral structures? How did the stars have time to you know just enough time hadn't passed in our perspective to actually have these beautiful big spiral structures at that point in time. Like, that takes time to happen. That takes, you know, a couple of billion years to happen, not on the order of hundreds of millions of years. And yet here we are looking at images from the very earliest epochs of the universe when the galaxies have formed. So we have to now question our theories and go, maybe the galaxies are forming in other ways. That's the thing with any new instrument, it seems to happen. It's like, oh, all of this stuff which we thought and now we've found this thing... Which is not. I mean, if we go back to uh, Leeuwenhoek and his microscope, suddenly finding things. I, I hope I've pronounced that right. But the Dutch zoologist who suddenly yep. turned his yep. telescope, uh, telescope, microscope onto a droplet of the water and found all these critters in it. Oh, hello. Microbiology suddenly is a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, it, it's, 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 it's remarkable. Like, be. Um, we, we, I mean, we had some idea that galaxies had to form at some point, and there's different models well, about how they form. Well, they're there. They, yeah. I mean, yeah. they had to form because we could see them. They yeah, came absolutely. From but, yeah. but, you know, what, what came first? You can first? get them the, at, the, uh, the stars at uh, the Audi on a Wednesday in the, in the middle <laughs> aisle. Spiral <laughs> galaxies. <laughs> yeah, so, it, it, so, it, so it, it, it's stuff like, you know, what, what came first, the stars or the galaxies? Did the, the, did the supermassive black hole at the centre of the galaxy form uh, from, you know, from collapsing black holes, and then it sucked in a lot of material around it, which created more gravity, therefore bringing the stars in. Or did did everything form at once, and the supermassive black hole just happened to be from, you know, happened to form from a collapsing cloud of gas as well? So there's all these questions that we want answered now, and that's uh, what this telescope is going to give us. Well, I mean, we could go on about that for ages, but there's two things I wanted to ask. One is, how do you get time on the telescope? Very interesting question, and uh, I don't know the full process as yet, but if you ask me again in six months, I will know because uh, I'm going to try apply for some time um, for next year's cycle. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm going to try, uh, me and some other people from my university are going to try apply for some time to look at the 
Crab Pulsar, which is uh, a supernova that was recorded in 1054 by the Chinese. Um, mm -hmm. And we see it today as a pulsar, and it's got a beautiful nebula around it. And the Hubble, Crab Nebula, uh, just I will say, I'll link to the best photograph of that I can find because it is truly beautiful and one of the first we, we understood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it was basically the, the item that uh, made us actually realize the connection between stars exploding and things like neutron stars and pulsars and black holes. It, it was a missing link because people were able to say, hey, we saw this star explode in 1054. We know it was in this region of the sky. There's a pulsar there, so maybe supernovas lead to things like pulsars, and therefore we were able to make that connection and work out you know, the proper stellar evolutionary model of these massive objects. Okay, so we will find out. I assume you have to you know, apply like applying for a grant or saying why should you have time as opposed to someone else. Yep. The other one is the controversy over the name of the telescope itself, James Webb Space Telescope. Now, James Webb was the NASA administrator, as they call it, the boss of NASA, um, in, uh, for a period in the 1960s. Uh, and it turns out that he was a bit of a homophobe. He was part of the whole lavender crackdown where in the 60s there was a whole thing about, you know, there are homosexuals in the US federal system and we must get rid of them all. Like it was the communists the decade before, there was this movement um, uh, looking at sexuality. And uh, there's certainly a... Uh, I mean, I'll link to all the stuff. It's on the Wikipedia page for the, the telescope anyway. Uh, but there's, uh, there's a call for the telescope to be renamed. Yes, that's correct. And just from the outset, I want to uh, say that I support the renaming of the telescope. Um, mm -hmm. And, in fact, many people have been calling it the Just Wonderful Space Telescope uh, instead, <laughs> of the James, just, instead of the James Webb Space Telescope. If we can have the Large Hadron Collider, you know, as a, as a differentiator. Yeah. Large, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so, I mean, on a serious note, it is, um, it is uh, I have read the material, I have read the NASA report into the inquiry of uh, James Webb. I found that report lacking um, and inadequate um, in terms of its results. I have read the... Well, previous... I mean, what, what, what did they decide? What was their finding? Their finding was that there was not enough evidence to say that uh, James Webb was involved in uh, homophobic activities uh, as part of the lavender scare. Um, okay. But he, but, but he was the director, or whatever he was at the time, and um, the administrator. It's a strange he, title, the administrator yeah. of NASA. Yeah, yeah, and so and and he was, you know, he he would have known about these things happening, and just even being alive at the time and and involved in bureaucracy at the time, those kind of things were happening in most organisations, and there are some organisations which came out against the lavender scare and made stand against it, whereas there's no record of NASA doing that. And you'd think if it was a big enough organisation like NASA, and it did, you know, and as people have said, he did stand up for uh, LGBTIQA people, then why is there no record of it? Because that would have been a big thing, right? If, if, if someone in, the, in that time, like James Webb's, you know, beat their chest and said, no, I'm going to stand with LGBTIQ people, that would have been front page news for an administrator to do that. And there's no what? record of that. <sighs> Was it though? I mean, I don't know how much the lavender scare got into the like the broader public's perception of what was happening, but also in the nineteen sixties, NASA was your ultimate propaganda thing. Yeah. I mean, NASA was consuming four percent of the mm. U.S. federal budget, which is 
phenomenally huge. I mean, you may have heard that there was a, a moon mission, um, you know, to a soundstage in Los Angeles. Um, but uh, no, but back back to serious serious point. NASA was the golden child in that period. They could they could do no wrong and could be seen to do no wrong. And therefore, did anyone want to even talk about that that was happening when, you know, look at the shiny new toy, look at Gemini doing its thing, looking at, I don't, I don't know. And yeah. to put my cards on the table, yeah. I, ha- I, I, I don't know. I you know, I honestly don't know. Is it possible to acknowledge the great things someone does and then things which we we find abhorrent, and, and if this is true about James Webb, it is, yeah. um, does that somehow negate the positive things? And... and but we've also had the uh, the whitewashing of Werner von Braun, the great rocket scientist who created yep. all of those fantastic launch vehicles of the 50s and 60s, yep. who was a Nazi who employed slave labour. But if you go, as as we've said previously, and I can't remember, I think it was with the Dr. Space Junk, if you, if you see um, one of the, the museums of rocketry, it sort of talks about how he was a pioneer of rocketry in the 1930s, and then did stuff with NASA in the 1950s. Wait, wait, you seem to have forgotten the bit where he used <laughs> slave labour to build weapons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, I, yeah. I mean, it's not nice, but it was also breakthrough technology. I don't, I don't yeah. know, would we call I mean, something... But, but, but Sorry, I'm I, rabbiting but, on. You, no, you that's okay, no, for a bit. That's okay. I mean, with Werner von Braun's case, which is a great example... Um, from what I've seen, and I, I hope it's still on there, I should double-check this, but from what I've seen on several NASA websites is that they acknowledge that he's a, he, he was a Nazi. They say mm. um, while he was a father of rocketry and, you know, it was because of him liquid engines were, you know, all that stuff about rockets, um, but he was also a Nazi. And, yeah. and that's like, you know, and I think what people are asking for is that uh, when you consider things like the James Webb Space Telescope um, and its impact with the lavender lavender scare, um, maybe we have to sort of take a stand and say, you know, the current environment and people now are uh, are offended, are harmed by this, by, by having a name of such a significant telescope in the name of a homophobe or an alleged homophobe. And, um, you know, if people, are, if queer people are saying, we don't like this, then why don't we just listen to them and say, okay, we did, well, sure. we, could, we, could, we, we can change it. And, that, and that's just the great question and it's the same that relates to issues of racism to say why yeah. don't why don't we listen to the indigenous australians or the black americans with their history of descent from slaves etc 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 it is an interesting question i i would not like to predict how that's going to turn out um in the modern america yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I think NASA's, from my perspective, what I've seen so far, just based on the report that they've done, I don't think NASA will change it. I think NASA will just keep it as it is because of um, uh, because they've they've seem to be washing their hands off it. And they've, they've said they've look, we've done some investment in researching this. The outcome has been such and such. We've done our part. We've ticked the box. Let's move on. What I think they should move, take away from this, and I think everyone who builds these telescopes or these observers should take away this is. Um, considering not naming 
these 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 objects after people in history because no one's got a clean past. Unfortunately, what we do today is going to probably look like shit ten years or fifteen years from now, and we don't know that. And so, you know, you just avoid it altogether by not naming these observatories by after people. That's actually a good point because we name or NASA names its exploratory vehicles after concepts like Opportunity and Voyager yeah. and yeah. and uh, you know those inspirational titles. Uh, maybe we need telescope telescopy face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something <laughs> That's along those lines. <laughs> Okay, look, uh, we should change the, the topic. Let's do that now. Sure. Space junk is falling to Earth more often, from Chinese rockets breaking up over Malaysia to SpaceX debris crashing onto farms in our state south. Tonight, scientists warn the problem is only going to get worse. Once we get down into the next gate, you'll be able to... Well, I can see it because I know where it is. What sheep farmer Mick Miners found in his back paddock was out of this world, speared into the ground a three-metre-long piece of space junk. This was a really rare somewhat exciting and special find. Astrophysicist Brad Tucker believes it's part of the SpaceX Crew-1 mission. This, one of the fins of the trunk section under the main capsule that was jettisoned as it returned to Earth in May last year, the trunk finally plummeting to Earth last month. On July 9th, it was spotted re-entering the atmosphere with a sonic boom. Its path saw it flashing across Australia at up to 25,000 kilometres an hour before coming down near Jindabyne. We are lucky that, you know, no one was hurt, no sheep, no animals, nothing like that. It really could have been a lethal event. With a second piece found by a neighbour, a third piece discovered not far away. Things like this usually burn up or hit the ocean. It's one of the biggest pieces of space junk seen since Skylab fell to Earth in WA in 1979, but becoming a regular sight as we send thousands more objects into orbit. The Australian Space Agency is working to officially identify the debris. The serial number is kind of helpful. SpaceX is yet to confirm if it is theirs, they can either ask to have it back or finders keepers. There's a lot of interest because of how rare it is of collectors wanting bits of it. Paul Kadak, 7 News. Yeah, I reckon that farmer might be able to make a few bucks out of carving that up. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, I actually have a funny story about this. I actually got an email from uh, Mick Wallace's neighbour, Jock Wallace, on the Monday before the story broke saying, uh, hi, Rami, I, I, I've actually, um, I think some space junk's fallen into my yard. Can we have a chat? And I, and I, and I, and I was like, is this guy serious at Come first? Like, yeah, it's and, and so I sent him back an email saying, oh, uh, hi, Jock, sorry, I've just you know, got a few things to do because my, I was doing my lit review at the time. I said, can you uh, maybe take some photos, take some measurements, um, send it to me and then and any, any you know, interesting features about it and let me know about it and I can have a look a bit further. And then he um, he didn't get a chance to do that and I didn't get a chance to get back to him, but uh, you know, a few days later the story broke. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I wish I actually had, you know, oh, that is awesome. Because when you Yeah, when you look at it, you go, yeah, that's a bit of a spaceship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and the way that was like, it was it was just standing up, like the way it Knife was like so knife yeah. into the ground. It just had this whole 2001 monolith sort of feel to it. It's beautiful. I mean, it's it's just one of the most beautiful bits of junk there has ever been. Yeah. Um. And and I do like our uh, 
uh, whoever it was in that report saying, you know, to identify it, said, oh, the serial numbers might help. And I'm like, yeah, 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 they might. If all the parts have got serial numbers, mate, you idiot. Um, <laughs> oh, no, uh, last, last I heard, um, and uh, I'll update this at the end of the podcast if it's changed, but um, I don't think SpaceX has got around to saying what's happening yet, although uh, the Australian no, no, space... I, I, I actually think they did. I think, I think the space agency confirmed that it was a space, they spoke to SpaceX and I think they confirmed it was a SpaceX piece. And I think SpaceX actually said, yes, it's ours. But I don't think they've said anything about coming to pick it up yet. Mm. Mm. I mean, the problem here is that the, the SpaceX does not have a public relations department. It's just Elon Musk's Twitter account. And we oh, may right. come back to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, good, good, good. In a moment. Um. It has survived, and I like this because I saw this in another report uh, in The Guardian. I'm not quite sure who they were quoting here. Um, that, yes, this stuff often burns up, but if something comes into the atmosphere and then explodes, well, of course, in an explosion, bits go in all directions, which means some of them are, in fact, slowed down so they can come down more gently, yep. as it were, and spear into the ground and create a three-metre-high monolith for some poor... Farmer up in Jindabyne. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, who's keeping track of all this shit? Do we know? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, there is there's your typical um, your typical military agencies which are keeping track of all things, regardless, like your NORAD and all that stuff. Um, but they're probably more defence and military based. NORAD is the North American Air Defence System, um, which was headquartered in a bunker way under Cheyenne Mountain. This is Cold War stuff, but yeah, they're they're looking for things which might be nuclear warheads coming in. But yeah. that means they're also seeing um, anything the size of a soft drink can or up. They're tracking. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, there's also, on top, on top of those sort of military folks who are doing that, um, there is, you know, certain uh, departments and gun agencies around the world. We don't have them here in Australia. But I think the most exciting part of space debris tracking is not the military or the government side of things, but the commercial side of things, and in particular, the uh, small uh, and, and the new sort of business uh, side of things. We have companies popping up doing passive radar and um, a whole heap of interesting stuff which are looking at the sky for uh, space debris management and space situational awareness. Now, they could; those companies are also probably working with military departments and, um, and government departments as well. But the concept is the same. But the concept of space tracking is still there. And a good example is, I think their names, I can't remember the exact name, but it's EOS Technologies, I believe. They're based at Canberra, Mount Stromlo, in fact. And they do space uh, tracking of, of targets of debris in centimetre sizes by shining lasers at them and figuring out the size by the time the laser bounces back. Okay. Now, you mentioned also that's, – that's pretty cool. You yeah. mentioned also their passive radar. That's when you essentially – I think I've got this right. That's when you are listening for the, the echoes off objects, but someone else's transmitter – yeah, so, um, so there's a company called, um, that I know of as well, called Selenium, and I think they're based in South Australia, and they're actually a new startup. Well, not when I say new, probably like five or six years old. Um, and they've got some beautiful technology where they have these long antennas that stretch out across like 10 or 15 metres on the ground. And, you know, these antennas just look like 
they look like um, mesh in a way, and it's just like it's a carpet of mesh that stretches out in a narrow sort of uh, pathway. And you know, when you're bouncing radar signals off off space debris, the reflection of those debris comes down and hits these this mesh, and they and they're able to pick up um, that detail. And so there's a whole bunch of startups that are doing this stuff now, and it's like it's it's now gone into that domain where startups are now starting to play with this kind of technology and add benefit. Uh, to government and to military as well. This is absolutely fascinating because there's something I was uh, covered many years ago. GIO in South Australia, which is an insurance company, but that once stood for Government Insurance Office, they had access to some of this space junk tracking. And as part of their portfolio, amongst doing car insurance and home insurance and all those things for the the, the fine citizens of South Australia, they were insuring satellite launches against running into junk because for some reason they had access to some data. I don't know. I mean, when you're talking South Australia people and and defence stuff and government connections, you, you just, you know, Woomera rocket range, secret UFO bases, all of that. Um, but, yeah, they, they made quite a lot of money off of insuring against running into a bit of junk yeah so, and, and and i think this is the crux of the problem right we're, we're talking about you know things coming down on earth but the problem is not that things come down on earth because that's fairly whilst we're seeing a bit more of it it's still fairly rare and the fact that you know 70 percent of the planet is water it's even more rare and unlikely that it's going to hit someone or kill someone it's not impossible but it's it's, it's the, the probability is quite low well even when i look out the window into the street there's, there's gaps between the humans walking down. Very rarely are they packed together in these tight yeah. lumps. You know, yeah, something yeah. the size of a fridge hitting there. It's probably not going to hit anyone. Is that a, That's a possibly a bit too laissez-faire, but let's move on. <laughs> if we take a step back, the problem is um, not so much that it's coming down. The problem is that it's going up, and it's, there's lots of it going up. And I was actually thinking to myself today, like, there's been at least three or four rocket launches in the last two days. Like uh, the Rocket Lab and Electron, a ULA launch, there was a SpaceX launch, and I'm sure there was another one um, that lifted a Korean uh, a bird out to the moon or something like that. So there's been, in the last two days alone, there's been so many rocket launches. And, and the problem is that there's so much going up now that it's commercialized. And we have to expect that now there will be more space jump, there will be more debris that comes back down onto Earth because there's more going up in the first place. Well, that gives me a perfect opportunity to play the song by the American satirist Tom Lehrer about Verna Von Braun, which includes the lines uh, along the lines of, my problem is to make them go up. It's not my problem where they come down. <laughs> that sounds great. Well, speaking of bombs, what is it that makes America the world's greatest nuclear power? And what is it that will make it possible for us to spend $20,000 million of our taxpayers' money to put some idiot on the moon? Well, it was the great, enormous superiority of American technology, of course, as provided by our great American scientists, such as Dr. Werner von Braun. <laughs> Gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, 
A man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? <laughs> That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero, once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. And thank you to Tom Lira for putting all of his songs into the public domain the other year. So you bastards can't ping me for a copyright strike on that. Um, yeah, uh, which brings us back to, of course, Elon. Well, before we go on to Elon Musk, the patron cunt of this podcast, I, I know we are obsessed with him. I, I want to mention, I'll just mention and link to it, that when Skylab came plummeting down. Those of you who are a bit older or are geeks in this field, there was a space station, an American space station called Skylab, and it was deorbited, and uh, they said, oh, we don't know where that's coming down, but in fact they did try to aim it at the Indian Ocean or Western Australia because whatever, nothing will hit there. Uh, and it did, in, it did, in fact, the biggest piece came down near Esperance in Western Australia where the local council ch uh, fined NASA $400 for littering. And they, I, I've linked to a thing about that. They did eventually pay it. NASA did eventually pay the $400. There are, there are certain fines that are applicable to any damage that's caused by space junk. So if it had, sure. hit, the if it had hit the Opera House... Then it's a different story, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and but, and you don't even need any special space law for that. That's just yeah damage to property, right? That's, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But I think I think the space law gives you opportunity to charge another country uh, on the basis that hey, there's, there's no objectifying to you. This, this is your rocket. This is, it's got SpaceX written on the side of it. You're going to pay this bill. Yeah. Um, so, but I think there is uh, one the the the. the, the Littering fee, I think it was from Esperance, wherever it was, um, was literally a littering fee. So I, I love yeah. that. It's actually a classic yeah. Australian move. And on that note, littering is akin to housekeeping. So let's take a break <laughs> to deal with that. On the podcast webpage, uh, as you know, if you're a regular listener, I, I link to everything. Uh, I have linked to uh, NASA's most recent uh biographical page for Werner von Braun and yes it does in fact acknowledge that he was an SS officer and used uh, slave labour from the concentration camps so that's a thing uh, and also uh, we were talking then about the uh, selenium uh, kind of space observatory space junk 
tracker. It's actually Silentium Defence uh, and their Oculus Observatory. I've linked to a bunch of stuff from Australia uh, from SpaceAustralia.com, uh, which Rami Rami Mandel he said before. I haven't even been pronouncing his name correctly, and he's too polite to say so. Uh, he was founder of SpaceAustralia.com, uh, and and I've linked to some stories about that, some some fascinating stuff. Uh, they reckon they're the most cost-effective uh, way of monitoring objects in orbit anywhere in the world. But then they would say that, uh, wouldn't they? Now, forthcoming episodes. Uh, the next one will be with Justin Warren. He's been on before. As you know, he's a consultant, a freedom of information tragic, a hexagon enthusiast. Uh, he created a thing called the Cyber Rating Labeling Scheme, which is a lovely bit of uh, bit of silliness. Uh, but we're going to be looking at uh, how things are going with the new government uh, in terms of digital and cyber stuff. Stuff. If you're a supporter with trigger words or a conversation topic, get them in by uh, midday this Thursday, midday Australian Eastern Standard Time, this Thursday, the 11th of August, uh, and uh, we will uh, deal with them appropriately. Now, after that, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what order things are going to be in. As you know, I've been trying to get hold of Umar Haq, who's uh, author of... Uh, Lovely books. He writes about the decline of America and the world. He also makes disco. Uh, we we just had trouble um, organising dates that line up. So I hope to still get him in that week. But also I will record another podcast with Dr Trent Yarwood, our infectious diseases specialist and medical geek. Um, and... We'll do both. We'll do at least one of those that week. Uh, And one will be the final episode in the winter series and one will be the first episode of the spring series. I mean, it all works out in the long run, doesn't it? If you have trigger words or a conversation topic for either Dr. Trent Yarwood or Umer Huck, get them to me uh, by Tuesday the 23rd of August, 6pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday the 23rd of August, and we will deal with you. (laughs) We will most certainly deal with you. Now, this podcast is, of course, made possible by you, dear listener, you generous listener, you lovable and and beautiful listener. Uh, This week, this episode, I'd particularly like to thank Jono Ferguson in New Zealand, who's... Edict 03 Cheeky Red Annual Subscription uh, renewed uh, this week. That's fabulous. Thank you, Jono. You get the usual rewards for that. If you would like to join those people, now normally you can go to the tip page, but we are already running the 9pm Spring Series 2022 crowdfunding campaign to uh, kick off the next season. We're going well. We're up to about 45% of Target 1, I think, at the time of recording, which is fantastic. Please pledge your support. Go to the 9pmedict.com slash spring2022. Have a read. There's a couple of new uh, rewards on offer, which are me doing uh, personalised audio or video recordings for you. Not not filthy ones at that price. You can contact me privately about that. Have a look. The 9pmedict.com slash spring2022. Please consider.
trigger word time. Now, I'm um, away from home. I'm house-sitting. So instead of the glass jar of transparency, I've got this large glass bowl of transparency, which I just found in the kitchen. Um, trigger words, as regular listeners to the podcast will know. If you're, if, you, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I hope you're enjoying this. I'm rummaging through the trigger words, which are in, in folded up pieces of paper in the big glass bowl of transparency. Now, each one of these pieces of paper has a word written on it that has been bought by a financial supporter of this podcast. Now, we'll see if we can get something out. Okay, first one out of the glass jar. From Crispin Harris over in Western Australia. Hi, Crispin. Hi to the family. Quadrilateral. Quadrilateral. What does that even mean? Is that is that like a is that like an elastics game or something? Well, quadrilateral just means any geometric figure with four sides, like a square or a rectangle or a rhombus. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, what do I think when I think quadrilateral? Um, uh, ooh, I think of uh, calibration waves that we see at parks. I think of. Uh, Sorry, expand on that. Oh, a calibration wave. It's like a, it's like a square wave that we see at parks. Every time before we take an observation, we always run a calibration first, and the actual on the wave, parks radio telescope. Yeah, and when when and when the wave comes through, or when the signal comes through, it looks like it's it, it's a square shape. It's literally a square shape. On the oscilloscope. Yeah. Yep. And so we are. Uh, we use that to calibrate uh, each of our observations before we take the observation itself. And that so helps. that's yeah, absolutely. And you need to do it all the time, otherwise your your data's all out. And so uh, that's what that reminds me of. Okay, quadrilateral also reminds me of the quad, which is the the new security relationship between ah. Australia, India, Japan, and the United States. And uh, some folks have, have rather, I, th- I, I think, sarcastically called it Asian NATO. But it, it is a strategic alliance between those four nations, Australia, India, Japan and the United States, quite, quite obviously to counter China yep. in, in East Asia. Um, but it's also the source of quite a bit of scientific... Cal- how did my voice go there? Scientific <laughs> collaboration between those countries and technological collaborations. Um, that is going to be interesting to see what comes out of that because one of the things Australia brings to the equation is hypersonic technology, uh, interesting radar technology. Uh, for, for those of you at home, Google the word jindaly. Um which is the most amazing? You're you're not a Ram, you're nodding confusingly, Rami. Do you want me to do the quick? Yes, please. I don't think I've heard that word either. Ah, oh, man, man, the jindaly over the horizon radar. This is absolutely an Australian invention, and the idea is if you want a long range radar to pick up ships and low flying aircraft, it helps if the radar signal is coming from above. So what Jindalee does, and the main station is near Alice Springs, it bounces the radar beams off the ionosphere ah. and then down. And there's a whole lot, in a very similar way to those lasers um, keeping the optical telescopes online, uh, you know, sharp yep. where the Earth's atmosphere is r- uh, wriggling. 
there are a number of stations around Australia where they fire beams up into the ionosphere to measure exactly how high the ionosphere is at that moment so that when gingerly bounces shit off the ionosphere and down and then it comes back and it's a whole phased array radar thing mm. and and it's it's brilliant technology and some years ago I could probably actually say this straight up um, because it's more than 30 years ago, I think nearly. Um, I, I spoke to an engineer who is one of the engineers on this thing and I said, there's a rumour going around that this can detect stealth aircraft. And he said, well, obviously I can't talk about Jindalee because it's a classified project. But what I can say is that stealthy aircraft are, of course, designed... Uh, to be hard to detect using standard military uh, frequency radars uh, operated from the ground. Jindalee works in these other HF frequencies, VHF frequencies, I forget which, and the beam is coming down from the top. Mm. Cool. Anyway, but Very as you said, cool. but obviously I cannot talk about the capabilities of Jindalee. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's really cool. You know what's interesting about that? Actually, um, because we, because as 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 a pulsar astronomer, we actually have to deal with the ionosphere quite a little bit. Because as this pulsar signal propagates through the atmosphere, sorry, through the ionosphere, it actually does change. You know, it does change certain polarization aspects of the signal. And you know, I wonder if they have to factor in solar cycles because you know the sun's activity well, cre creates this, you know the, the ionosphere to puff up and down a little bit, and so. That will change. Well, that's how that's that's literally what the other sounding stations that point yeah. straight up around Australia—they're measuring the ionosphere, which means that crew must have some really fucking awesome data on how the ionosphere works. Absolutely. You, you, if you look at that data, you can actually see solar events. You can actually just detect when solar events are occurring by looking at the data of the ionosphere. That's this awesome. reminds me of a similar thing during the, the Cold War in the 1960s and 70s. There was SOSIS, sonar stations under the sea. So, <laughs> you know, you want, to, you want to have listening stations to detect submarines and things like that. So you've, there's just a, there's a shitload of microphones recording just the sounds of the ocean, the Atlantic, the Pacific. Now, their, their job was listening for nuclear submarines. But as a side effect, it means they've got this amazing series of recordings of the sounds of the ocean. And again, um, the, the Americans and the Soviets had a lot of their, their carry-on under the, uh, the Arctic ice cap. So they've got an amazing, an amazing record of data of the thickness of the ice sheets so yeah. that the submarines knew where they could punch through thin ice to launch their missiles. Some of that was declassified a few years ago, uh, of all the things I've just spoken about, because presumably they've got much better stuff now, in the same way that uh, a lot of the 1960s and early 1970s satellite imagery of the Soviet Union was declassified by Barack Obama and suddenly all of this high-resolution imagery of the deserts of Central Asia revealed, oh, look, cities, lost cities we didn't know were there from a 1,000 years ago. And yeah, yeah. so the archaeologists wet themselves. 
Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I wonder if that under the the was it called Sonus? Sosus. S O S U S. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if Sosus actually was able to detect um, seismic events, like the waves that are generated are seismic events. Um, you know, like uh, under underground massive earthquakes that would have generated some you know low frequency noise. Um, that would be really cool. That would be really really wow. cool. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's an amazing. Thank you, Crispin, yes. for that. He's a real geek. He works in the cybers, and he'll be kind of very happy with that. Hang on. I meant to draw it out of the thing on camera. There we go. Put it down. I'm putting it down out of shot. There could be someone, like, budging it. Yeah, <laughs> you're we'll not do a second it. I, one. I believe you. You're not going to ring it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We'll let people believe that. Miriam Mulcai. Hi, Miriam. Flight. Ah, flight, of course, this is great. You know, flying birds, flying planes, flying um, scramjets, flying, you know. Scramjets. Shuttles, all that stuff. It's, flight is awesome. I was actually, uh, I was watching some birds the other day and I was just out my window just looking and thinking, how awesome would it be just to be up there and just float around and looking down and shitting on people whenever you wanted to. It, it, it's just, it's such a it's such a great life. You just don't, you, you know, some of, them, some of those birds are pretty lazy. They don't even flap their wings. They just, you know. Carry ride the thermals and just sit around and just keep oh, looking down. That's that, that's that's the way to live. I will link to the. There's an amazing video of a kestrel on a, on the edge of a cliff somewhere in the northern hemisphere, where kestrels are. It's looking down at the ocean surface or whatever for things to attack. Birds found further, and all of the turbulence is there, flight. You know, pushing this bird around. But its head is still rock solid, stable, locked on. Its eyes looking straight down, and it's like its whole body and wings are rotating around its stationary head. I mean, that's not what's happening. It's being knocked around, and its brain is able to counteract that by moving its head. So its head is absolutely stable. That's amazing. That is truly amazing. Again, it comes back to this active. Yep. Um, active um, compensation is the word I'm looking for. Active stabilization. And, and, and since we're talking about birds, I've got to give a shout out to my two favourite birds. Um, oh yes, and when we met them last time, we, uh, when we had this chat because they were on the balcony screaming. And uh, this morning, when I went to, uh, they came back and they tapped on the window, and I, I actually um, went out and gave them a, little, a few seeds. Um, and for the first time ever, uh, they jumped into my hand, and they are uh, they they were able to they, they trust me enough to now eat off the, out of my hand. And I've named them. Um, so for those of you who don't know, my background is Assyrian. It's an ancient culture, and uh, there's been a few big figures in Assyrian history and human history altogether. And can I, them- can I, look, I should say we'll come back. I'll, I'll say two things: a, the birds we're talking about are rainbow lorikeets, which yes. are just insane. B where was Assyria in terms of modern yeah, borders, yeah, yeah. etc.? Yes, yeah, so Assyria was an empire, not once, but like I think twice actually. Mm. And it covered um, areas like Iraq, Iran, which is Persia, um, Egypt, part of Saudi Arabia, part of Lebanon, part of Turkey. So it was that whole sort of military. It was a big and, empire. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of shrunk and grew over time and it fell once and then came back again and fell a second time. Um, but it hasn't existed for about, I think, 1,500 years, 2,000 mm. years um, as a country as itself. Um, the Assyrian population has been scattered 
across the world um, since then. And uh, we are found in places like Sydney, Stockholm, Chicago, Detroit are probably the main uh, centres of Assyrian people. And uh, they, uh, but, but a lot of Assyrian people also come from Iraq. Like my parents are from Baghdad and we grew up in an Assyrian neighbourhood in Baghdad. Um, and we came to Australia when I was three months old. Um, and uh, because of different wars, back then it was 1980, uh, so it was the Iraq-Iran war, but obviously since then the 2001 and 2011 wars have driven more diaspora, and so many more Assyrians have left uh, that region because it's been dangerous for them and become part of the greater world. But now you have a couple of rainbow lorikeets, I which do, has nothing do. to do with Assyria. Well, it, no, it does, because I was actually going to say, I've named them both, and I've called them both Ishtar and Gilgamesh, which oh. are which are two Assyrian <laughs> dotis. And so um, I was feeding them both today, and 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 Gilgamesh, the uh, the absolute prick that he is, because he protects Ishtar quite a bit. He uh, he bit yeah, that me. fits with the mythology. Yeah, <laughs> and he bit me, and and I'm not sure if anyone's ever been bitten by a rainbow lorikeet, but it bloody hurts. Yeah, yeah, their beaks are really sharp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. oh, they're little asshole birds. They're, I mean, they're, they're very pretty, but they're crazy. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's two lessons in there. One is, uh, you know, don't buy the hand that feeds you, and the other one's somewhere along the lines of, um, you know, don't feed the fucking wildlife. <laughs> yeah, I do that, and it now costs me a fortune because they come and monster me at the door. <laughs> you know, they bash on the windows and things. Yeah. <sighs> Thank you so much, Miriam Mulcahy, for uh, – sorry, I'm just crumpling up the paper there. Thanks, Miriam. Now, Remy, we spoke earlier about the black hole at the centre of the galaxy. Did you know there's a black hole at the centre of the Earth? Not until you told me. <laughs> no, I didn't. This is a paper from 2019 from the Open Access Macedonian Journal of Medical Sciences, which says a black hole at the centre of Earth plays the role of the biggest system of telecommunications for connecting DNAs, dark DNAs, and molecules of water on a four-plus n-dimensional manifold. So it turns out, uh, they allege, this is in, now in the abstract of this paper, that recently some scientists from NASA have claimed that there may be a black hole-like structure at the centre of the Earth. I can see you shaking your head already. Uh, and they, they, they I'll, I'll skip a bit here, but they say that this black hole-like object is a black brain, B-R-A-N-E, which I assume is short for membrane, uh, that has been formed from biological materials like DNA. And the size of this DNA black brain is 109, very specific, 109 times longer than the size of the Earth's core and compacted into it. And by compacting this long object, a curved space-time emerge. And you're still shaking your head here, Rabbi. This is, this is science. I, I mean, I, I, I could go on... Um, is there a black hole at the centre of the Earth and can you prove it? No. no can no, you prove no. there isn't, I think, was more my question. Yes. Yes, we can. Um, <laughs> yes, we absolutely can. With, with things like earthquakes, believe it or not. Um, but that was a lot to unpack there. Wow. That, like, you know, 
multi-dimensional brains and curved objects creating curved space-time and a connection to DNA and and dark DNA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. here's another sentence from the abstract. This dark part of DNA called uh, as a dark DNA, I mean, English is not their first language, uh, is dark DNA in an extra dimension? These dark DNAs not only exchange information with DNAs, but are also connected with some of the molecules of water and helps them to store information and have memory. Thus, the Earth is the biggest system of telecommunication which connects DNAs, dark DNAs, and molecules of water. Look, I mean, the, the Earth is probably, as far as we know, the biggest communication of biological, sorry, the biggest system of biological communication that we know of, because humans, animals, plants, yada, yada. We have That's life, true. and that goes yeah. back to uh, the Gaia theory, uh, yeah. James Lovelock, who uh, died the other day. Oh, I didn't know that. So that's quite... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll link to a bio, but yeah. the, the Gaia theory is essentially that the Earth in itself is an organism, that it's self-regulating, and we're just part of that in a broadly similar way that the bacteria in our gut are part of us and, yeah. you know, all yeah. of that. Yeah. So James Lovelock, he, he died only a few days ago, remarkable thinker. Um, yeah. So, so, so there is, I think there is that, that part is real. What they're talking about here, and I'm presuming they're inferring, when they say dark DNA, they're trying to carry on the dark matter sort of angle here. And mm. they're trying to infer that there's this unknown... Uh, substance that communicates with the known substance uh, somehow the water molecules I think you mentioned there um, and that is a way to that connects biology with this earth's core I mean this is wild this is like this is out there wild Um, obviously this paper has been retracted by the publisher (laughs) Um, as has another paper by the same authors titled 5G Technology and Induction of Coronavirus in Skin Cells. Wow. Wow, that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I've also linked to an article from Vice, uh, Vice.com, who people will know because for this Vice TV and all of that. Yeah. Uh, the headline is Inside the Bizarre Publishing Ring that Linked 5G to Coronavirus. It's, it, it's not entirely clear whether these are crazy people or whether it's people trolling the publications to say their peer review processes are mm-hmm. garbage. The problem is on the internet, when you see what looks like an official paper, when you see a publication-looking document with, like, you know, the title and the name of the authors of hyperlinks and an abstract and then... Mm. and it looks like, real. It, it looks real. And so people pick that up and go, this is real. This is definitely real. I've done my research. I've read the paper. What people don't actually get is that critical thinking actually requires you to uh, to learn about different kinds of journals and different publications and different retraction rates and uh, and and not trust them. We're not taught critical thinking growing up. Like you're not. Unless you go to a special school, you're not taught these skills and you have to learn them later on in life and it's hard as an adult. As, sorry, as an adult learning critical thinking is tough because you're so used to going, I saw it on the internet. And our parents struggle with this most because my mum, for example, she's the one who goes, oh, it's on Facebook. It must be real. I'm like, Jesus Christ, mum. Like, who sent it to you on Facebook? She's like, oh, my friend who lives around the corner. I'm like, so I look at the link and it's like some random website I've never even heard of and mum believes it. And it's like, fuck, like, how do I, how do I fight this misinformation? It, it's, it's, a, it's hard. Disinformation again is is 
like a huge problem in so many fields. I was I was just going to find if people want to play with this. Have you heard of the new age bullshit generator? I haven't, but I love it already. It sounds fun. This was created a few years ago, uh, and and it begins Namaste. Do you want to sell a new age product and or service? Tired of coming up with meaningless copy for your starry-eyed customers? Want to join the ranks of best-selling self-help authors? We can help. Just click this button. And I will click this button. And here's some of the stuff. This is magical. Yearning is born in the gap where fulfillment has been excluded. Only a wanderer of the stratosphere may rediscover this rekindling of fulfilment. You must take a stand against delusion. And it goes on for some pages. But yes, that's not even, you know, that's not AI. That's just a, a kind of pattern match for some grammars and shove words into it. It's quite magical. That sounds like some real bullshit. Have you encountered any astronomical conspiracy yeah. theories or bullshit i mean apart from the obvious the moon landings were faked stuff yeah yeah you have you have your there's different levels of this right there's like the as you said the moon landers didn't happen the the flat earth people um the astrology aspect of it all um but then there's like stuff I, that, I did a course in astrology it's real okay i believe you what <laughs> I, I believe you uh, but um, we'll do we'll talk about that next time okay because it's um, fascinating but, see but, where uh, it comes from but, I mean, like, there is stuff that is, like, sort of semi-real and comes from from people who are well-credentialed. Um, and you think to yourself, that's bullshit and you're pushing your own – and I'll give you an example in a second – and you're pushing your own agenda here um, and you're pushing it under the guise of science and you're using your credentials and your status and your privilege to actually push that message out there, which confuses the public and I hate you for doing it. And the example I was going to tell you was about um, – I'm sure people have heard of him – a scientist who was, I think he was, a, I'm pretty sure he's a former head of Harvard's astronomical sort of department, which is a pretty big school, like Harvard, mm. for God's sake. Uh, his name is Avi Loeb. And uh, he has recently gone a little bit off the rails, to say the very least. So he has been pushing um, aliens visiting the solar system theory um, for a little while, for the last couple of years. And he's basing this on a... a Piece, a piece of space rock, an asteroid that came towards the sun on a hyperbolic orbit. It dived oh, into yeah. the solar system, and as it dove in and it sort of left, it swung around the sun, left sun. Uh, we were watching it, and astronomers were watching it and observing it, and they observed it was actually speeding up as it went away from us. This was the and, one that was a big cigar shaped yes, thing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, mm. and so, and so his theory was that it was a. Um, well, one of his theories was that it's alien technology and it was a spy probe of some nature or a solar sail, an alien solar sail of some nature. And so, you know, he'd done some maps. He produced a couple of papers with some undergrad students on it uh, and it got out there. But he pushed it so much that it almost became evan evangelical. And it's like, mm. dude, like this, this, this doesn't make sense. Like why would, of all the stars out there, of all the systems out there, why would we be getting an alien space probe to us? What makes us special? You know, no well, way. we've been beaming out television shows like I Love Lucy for 70 years. There is that, but I, I, suspect, uh -huh. they'd, I suspect they'd send nukes instead. Um, <laughs> 
So, so uh, there is that. Yeah, if they watch any of the TV from the 1950s again, no, no, we don't want these people in the Galactic Federation. They're That's problem right. children. That's right. That's right. So, um, so I mean, like, yeah, he, I mean, and, and, and his credentials, his Harvard credentials, made it sound like it was legitimate shit, and people started going, well, maybe it is, and other people started writing papers, and this is where it becomes a bit scary because you never know when one of these people just like obvious, you know, well-privileged, high-status people just has a brain snap and starts putting out shit and people go, well, we believe him because we believe the rest of his stuff. And to his credit, Avi Lowe's previous work from years ago is great. It's good science. I use it. I use Avi Lowe's previous work from 10 years ago. Like he's done some amazing science. It's just recently he's been a bit weird. We've been chatting a while here, Rami. We should give a plug for spaceaustralia.com and talk about uh, some of those things before we wrap up. Suspected Mars water really is water, you published the other day. Yes, this is a fascinating study, and, and this is one of, I think, three articles that we've done on, on this topic um, with, with a wonderful science. Her name's Graziella, and she's actually based in South Australia. She was based in Sydney. Now, what they've done is they've used one of the orbiters around Mars. I think it's Mars Express. Um, I can't remember the exact name of the actual orbiter. But they've actually, uh, which, which, which this orbiter fires off lasers down into Mars and, and, and radar, sorry, not lasers, and is able to peer just below the surface or to a certain depth below the surface to see the reflectivity of whatever's down there. And what they found is near the south pole of Mars, not on not onto the, on the south pole, just around it, um, she actually thinks she's found uh, these underground lakes, you know, which are existing uh, below, the, below the surface of Mars, um, and it, it's in the south polar region of, of Mars itself. And these lakes contain what, what, what we expect is liquid water. And this is really important because it might, water on Mars, on the surface of Mars, either freezes or boils away based on the actual atmosphere. Um, but Mars's here, atmosphere being what percentage of the density of Earth's? Oh, I sorry, this, is, this is a very, quiz very question. Yeah. Um, much <laughs> is, smaller, let's just say much less. So water yes. will just evaporate. Yeah, because there's less pressure. So basically it's like taking a, a jug of water up a on top of Mount Everest, the boiling point is a lot lower because basically there's less pressure above you. And, um, you know, and if, if there is water in these un- underground lakes, then that's a real good sign because it means that if liquid water has existed to this day, you know, 4.6 billion years after the solar system formed, there could be microbes living down there. You know, we, we know of extremophiles that live in dark caves on Earth that don't mm-hmm. get any sunlight and are able to produce food and energy without the sun. And you know, these, these, these organisms uh, can exist in extreme conditions. In fact, there's a lake in Antarctica, and it's called Lake Vostok, and it's actually very much well below the ice shelf, deep, deep under, like very deep underground. It gets no sunlight, and it's liquid water. It's not, it hasn't frozen over because the pressure and the heat from the underground keeps it at a certain temperature. Now, scientists have been able to send probes and drills down there and pull out samples of that water and found even in that water, away from the sunlight and away from all the actual activity on Earth's surface, that microbes can still exist. And that gives us hope because what if microbes exist in these underground lake reservoirs on Mars? That would be an absolute game changer um, to find that kind of information out. I would, I mean, personally, I would not be surprised if we find them there. I mean, 
I kind of subscribe to the panspermia yep. thesis. Um, and I won't explain that. I'll just link to it. You can look that up for yourselves. But even here on Earth, there are bacteria that have evolved to live in the 300 degrees Celsius um, compressed water of nuclear reactors yeah. with massive radiation levels. They, they just do this shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's... Check that story out. It is fascinating, and that'll be amazing if Mars does that. And another series you're you're doing at SpaceAustralia.com, uh, Women of the Australian Space Community, lovely series of profiles. One includes a friend of the pod, Dr. Alice Gorman, Dr. Space Junk, uh, who's been so busy with this space station archaeology project. Mm -hmm. She'll be back on when, I, when, when they've finished their observation period, I'm sure. Mm. Um, Great series, the Women of Space Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and this is something that I wanted to actually highlight um, with the team and we got, we got together we thought of this plan. Um, you know, space in any country, not just Australia, is, uh, for lack of a better sentence or phrase, pale, male and stale. <laughs> so uh, yeah. it's, it's a cliche, but it's so true. It is. And, and when you go to meetings um, and conferences, the predominant, uh, you know, uh, demographics are white males. And so we wanted to highlight uh, all the amazing women who are actually in the space community, across the different space communities in Australia, um, and all the different jobs that they do and all the little things that they add to value when it comes to the Australian space community because there are many of them out there. You just don't hear their stories. Mm. And so we have uh, Ruth from our team who's a superstar. Uh, she interviews a new women from the space community once a week and we post that interview online um and i recommend uh you check it out but also if you're out there and you're listening to this and you're from the space communities no matter which shape way or form uh and you identify as woman please get in touch with us we'd love to tell your story as well and the last thing you wanted to mention uh it says here pulsars Yes, my, my, this is my baby. It's my bread and butter, as I said before. Uh, so we've got a couple of big yeah, sort pulsar of... pulsar boy, Remy Mandel. <laughs> we've got a couple of big anniversary actually, this weekend. Um, two things. Tomorrow uh, is the day that uh, the very first detection of a pulsar occurred 55 oh, wow. years ago. Yeah, by, by Dane Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell. And there's a great story that we should probably link to in your uh, webpage about oh, this. Oh, we will. In terms of, you know, uh, this, she was at the time a PhD student and they were building this telescope out of wires and, and, and mesh uh, out in the outback of, not the outback, the actual regional areas of England. And she spent two years building this thing and she was one day looking at this data that was produced out of these, uh, these, these charts that come out of these old, those old machines. And she noticed a little bit of scruff on there and she's like, oh, that's interesting and didn't pay much attention to it for a couple of months, but she kept seeing it. Um, and what was interesting is that it kept coming up at the same part of the sky. Now, when she looked at this further, she actually found it was very repetitive and it was repeating at absolutely regular occurrences every 1.3 seconds. And she actually wrote the name down on the piece of uh, that radio chart paper, LGM, which stands for Little Green Men, because nothing natural in the universe that we had known of at the time could produce a per per periodic signal at that regular occurrence over that many months. And so we were, so she thought, I'm onto something. And this is where the story goes a little bit sad because once she actually told her supervisor, Anthony Hewish, who I believe died very recently, um, he kind of 
him and his other male dude came and took the credit for it and eventually mm. won the Nobel Prize for it, even, oh, though, it was her dis- even though it was her discovery. Um, and, you know, she never actually got the credit for it, and, and even though people knew she discovered it. Um, years later, I think a couple of years ago, in like 2019, she won the Breakthrough Prize, which is $3 million um, for her science. And being the absolutely wonderful human being that she is, she donated 100% of that money to young refugee women who are doing astronomy. Um, wow. Yeah, so a superstar, this woman, Dame, Dame Jocelyn Bill Burnell. Check her out um, and check out her story because I think it's really important to tell. And so 55 years ago uh, this weekend, she detected the first pulsar signal, um, and that's an anniversary that we're celebrating. That's fantastic. Well, um, uh, we're recording this on Friday. I will be editing on uh, Saturday, so I'll be able to link to that article. Well, maybe I'll edit it on Sunday. I don't know. It's the weekend. Where do we do that? And and I'll see if I can find another story I know about that when it was the hunt for pulsars and everyone thought, let's see if we can find them. And one of the major radio telescopes thought they'd found a pulsar, but it turned out just to be the electric fence on a nearby farm going pulse, pulse, pulse with the <laughs> little zap things. Very disappointing. A funny extra story there is, uh, you know, the Parkes Radio Telescope, that beautiful, big, iconic dish that we have. Um, at one point, it had found a whole new type of radio signal that was quite bizarre and unlike anything humans had seen before. But it only seemed to be occurring during the lunchtime break and during the week only. And so they tried to figure out what it was, and they eventually realised that people at parks were warming up their lunch in the microwave and, <laughs> hit, and, and hitting the open button of the microwave before it had finished actually counting down, which sent out a blast of microwave radiation which hit the dish and became this uh, unknown signal. So it's a fun story there. Science has so many magical moments like that. Rami Manda, we can, of course, find you at spaceaustralia.com, on uh, the Twitter as Cosmic Rami. Anything else we need to plug? Uh, No, I think we're good. That's fabulous. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. Uh, before we go, <laughs> yeah, I've started making this a bit of a regular segment where I uh, fact-check the things we've spoken about and uh, add in a few things that uh, have uh, have attracted my attention since we did the recording. Uh, first of all, the stories about astronomers thinking they'd found a pulsar but it turned out to be an electric fence. I couldn't find a specific instance Um uh, things like electric fences were first thought to be what they were detecting when they found pulsars and so on. If you can find a specific instance of astronomers going, hurrah, we found a pulsar, but then going, oh, oh wait, no, that's an electric fence, do let me know. Uh, the quiz question, what is the uh, uh, density of the atmosphere on Mars. According to the uh, Wikipedia, the average surface pressure on Mars is only about 610 pascals. Uh, for Americans, that's 0.088 pounds per square inch. That's less than 1% of the Earth's atmospheric pressure. In fact, it's 0.006%. Uh, uh, I mean, no, factor of 0.006%. Obviously, so not much. Um, so liquid water on Mars—that 
That is amazing. Um, here's a story which I, I, I mean, it's a shame I didn't find this when we, we, I was talking to Rami, but a French scientist, Etienne Klein, uh, he's had to apologise because he, he published a photo and tweeted, here is an image from the James Webb Space Telescope of an exoplanet, a, a planet that is outside the solar system. He had to apologise because it was actually a slice a slice of chorizo. Uh, that's good. I've actually got a photograph of some chicken soup, which I've I've thought of, and I inverted the colours of it, so I reckon I could get away with that as a photograph of a gas giant. <sighs> the French, um, and given that uh, the the Webb Telescope is out there, apparently people have been asking. Uh, the Twitter accounts of uh, the Voyager spacecraft, which were launched out of the solar system in uh, the 1970s. They're quite away from Earth uh, now. Uh, and uh, they said, look, could could the, the, the James Webb Space Telescope uh, spot those spacecraft out beyond the solar system? Uh, they tweeted, uh, in short, no. Two problems. We're small, 3.66 metres across, and we're cold somewhere around uh, minus 270 Celsius, just above absolute zero, and about minus 80 Celsius. Uh, Webb is, of course, an infrared telescope, so for Webb's instruments uh, to detect them, they would, they're so cold, you'd need a 4,000-kilometre-wide mirror to see them. Uh, that's if they were warm. Uh, that's how far away... The Voyager spacecraft are, or how big galaxies are in the distance when you're trying to photograph them and they come out as just a single point of light. Universe, the universe is quite big, isn't it? And finally, on another note, if you're, if you're thinking you're travelling to New York, one of the... Uh, the great advantages of New York has just been taken away. The Metropolitan Transport Authority has just officially banned shitting in the subway. America, it's falling apart, people. Well, that's all the edict for now. Please go to the 9pmedict.com slash spring 2022 to support uh, the current crowdfunding campaign. Uh, you'll find all the links and credits on the website because that's where they always are. And the next episode is with digital enthusiast Justin Warren. If you have input for that, oh my God, I'm running out of time. Get that input to us by Thursday lunchtime the 11th of August. Until then, I'm still Gary and wash your hands. Thank you. Bye. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.